And so uh, let, me, let me begin uh, with this. Ready? <clears throat> Spoiler alert. <clears throat> He's alive. Okay. You, you, you realize what a spoiler alert is, right? It, it's like an announcement, you're alerted to the fact that someone's going to give away the ending. I mean, uh, definition of a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, uh, noun, a warning that an important detail of the plot development is about to be revealed. But there's something about a spoiler alert that prevents you from experiencing the drama as it unfolds. So, hey, uh, you want to watch an old movie? Yeah, ab absolutely. What do, you, what do you have in mind? You know, I haven't, I haven't watched The Sixth Sense in, like, forever. You know, you're kidding me. Believe it or not, I've never, I've never seen that. What's it about? Ah, that's the movie <clears throat> where Bruce Willis is dead, but he doesn't know he's dead. Do you want to watch that one? Not now. That's what a spoiler alert does. It gives the ending away. Now, uh, Easter Sunday, resurrection morning, I'm assuming <clears throat> that most of you, not all of you, but most of you have been spoiled. That is, you already have a clue about what is going to happen. But these people didn't. I mean, when we awaken to Easter morning, Christians around the world awaken to Easter morning and go, he is risen, and then have chocolate. <laughs> the people who were experiencing the story had no clue what was going to happen. And just understand the timetable here. Easter Sunday morning, it's just a couple days after Jesus had been horribly executed. They don't awaken on that Sunday morning to go, he's alive, he is risen. They awaken that morning to these two words, crisis and confusion. They awaken to crisis and confusion. I mean, think about it with me. You got guys like Peter and John, Thomas, they have been traveling with Jesus for the better part of three years. We're talking miles, we're talking meals, we're talking miracles. They've logged hundreds of hiking miles with Jesus. They've shared hundreds of meals with him, listening to him. And man, they saw stuff. Jesus touches the eye sockets of a blind guy, and the guy sees. He unstopped deaf ears. Some people who were paralyzed were walking. There was one time that Jesus yelled at a storm and the wind stopped. These guys, they were like all in, full-on believers. They, they had come to believe that Jesus was the promised king, the chosen one, the one with God's special anointing, the Christ, the Messiah. And then this happens. They didn't have a category for this. A crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. I mean, crucifixion, the Romans had invented crucifixion as the worst possible death reserved for the worst possible people. And that happened to them. I mean, you catch them early Sunday mornings like, I mean, we don't even know what to believe anymore. That's where we find them. We find them in a full-on faith quake. 
that we don't even know what to believe anymore. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something very, very difficult. I'm going to ask you to forget that you know where the story is going. I'm going to ask you to try to put yourselves in their shoes, crisis and confusion, a full-on faith quake. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two encounters, two one-on-one encounters between Jesus and, and, and other people. And it's, it's not just a story of losing faith, like they wake up Sunday morning, we don't even know what to believe anymore. It's also a story of recovering faith. Not only a story of losing faith, a story of recovering faith. And I think this is why this is such an important conversation for us today. Because, because faith is fluid. And by that I mean at any given time, there are people coming to faith. Maybe at that same time, there are people losing their faith. They feel their faith slipping away. Because of a, a, a tragedy. Because of a series of of disappointments because of a relationship that implodes it opens up this gap in the earth under them because they experience abandonment betrayal or desertion and there are days when people who were strong believers wake up and they go man I just don't know anymore I don't know what I believe anymore so what I'm trying to say is we're gonna watch these two encounters we're gonna watch stories of people recovering their faith And man, it's just my deep and sincere hope that a lot of people will journey out of today and look back on today, Easter Sunday, 2023, as the day when the journey of faith got reignited, the journey of faith got restarted. Maybe you won't look back and say, it was fully recovered that Sunday in church, but you might be able to say, I remember that that's where the journey got relaunched. And where faith started to be real again. So we're going to watch two people recovering their faith. And it's my hope that this will be kind of like a mile marker in many of your journeys of faith as well. So two encounters. Uh, first encounter we're going to look at is a woman by the name of Mary. And uh, Mary was an incredibly common name in the first century. So I had to identify which Mary it was. And this particular Mary is known as Mary Magdalene. Probably from the town of Magdala. Mary Magdala. Mary Magdalene. And... Uh, she shows up. It's early, early, early Sunday morning. It's like it's not even daylight yet. And she shows up at the tomb of Jesus, and something is wrong. John chapter 20, verse 1, we read these words. Early, early on the first day of the week, at Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She's there, and something is wrong. What Mary sees is this. Now that stone is supposed to go over the door to the tomb to protect the body inside. Early in the morning, she gets there. The stone is in the wrong position. The stone is in the wrong place. It's rolled away. She looks inside. The body is gone, and she panics. Now, this is John's account, one of the four Jesus biographies in our Bible. You piece together some of the other biographies, and you see that there were several women that went to the tomb that morning. But what I love that John does here is he lasers in on just one person so that we get to see one story and one personal interaction with recovering faith. And so Mary, the stone is in the wrong place. The body isn't there. The tomb would have been outside the city limits, outside the wall of the city. She races back in one of the city gates and goes to find a John 
a disciple John, and also Peter. And so this is what happens. She runs back into Jerusalem and says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Someone took him, we can't find him. Hear a little bit of panic in her voice. Someone took him, we can't find him. I just want you to note, again, put yourself in her shoes. Experience the story one confusing event at a time. She doesn't rush back into the city and go, hallelujah, he is risen. She rushes back into the city and going, someone took him, we can't find him. So Peter and John, they race through the same city gate probably outside of town over to the tomb. John gets there first. Peter runs right past him and goes on in. And so it's a setting kind of like this. And they're looking in at grave clothes that are in there, but there's no body. And they're just like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, Grave robbery was common in the first century. People would come in to loot graves for valuables, not just jewelry. One of the things that was valuable was the cloth. Because nothing was mass-produced. Everything is made by hand. Cloth was incredibly expensive. So if someone is robbed the grave, no, 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 no. You leave the body and take the cloth. You, you don't leave the cloth and take the body. And so it's not a grave robber. And then they go, if a friend had come and moved him from one grave to another, why would they unwrap him first? And so John and Peter are just looking at this, trying to figure out, and then they head back to town. And as soon as they head back to town, the camera again focuses right back on Mary, Mary Magdalene, and we see her in a meltdown. She starts to cry. She starts to weep. She starts to sob. And she looks back in the door to the tomb. There's two guys sitting in there, both of them in white. They are messengers. And they ask her a question, and the question they ask is, why the tears? Why are you crying? They ask her, woman, why are you crying? And it's like a a, a broken record. She says to them this. She says, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they put him. Someone took him. I can't find him. And she stands outside, and she just sobs. Question, what's she doing there? Who is she? And what's she doing there? Let, let, me, let me take you somewhere. Let me ask you to travel with me. And this Easter resurrection story we're looking at is in John 20. We're going to flip back to uh, Luke's gospel, Luke's recounting of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're going to travel, we're going to travel up north together. Now, Jerusalem is in the, like the southern part of Israel. Jerusalem is where Jesus gets executed and where the resurrection happens. But the epicenter of Jesus' ministry was really up north near the Sea of Galilee. And there's this one scene in Luke's gospel where Jesus is traveling from village to village, town to town, city to city, and he's teaching. He goes into a town and he says, the kingdom of God is near. God's reign on earth is near. But, 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 but don't see Jesus traveling solo from town to town. He has an entourage. Jesus is traveling with a posse. First, he's got the 12 chosen disciples that we would later know as the 12 apostles. So that 12 plus Jesus, so 13. So pretty big group, 13 people traveling from town to town. But in addition... There's also a group of women that have attached themselves to the group. So imagine now Jesus, 12 male disciples, and you know, four, five, six women that are traveling 
as well. So this is what Luke explains in Luke chapter 8. He says, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, he says, the 12, the 12 disciples were with him and also some women, but it qualifies who these women were. Some women who had been cured of, and then cured of two things, either evil spirits or diseases. These women who attached themselves to the Jesus group, some had had like demons driven out of them and others had had illnesses driven out of them. They had been cured of evil spirits or diseases. And then it's, Luke is going to give you a little short list of some of the women who were uh, hanging out and tagging along with this group. Any guesses as to who the first woman is that's mentioned in Luke's list? You're wrong. Uh, no, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, you're right. Now, listen how Mary is described. It says, Mary Magdalene from whom... Mary Magdalene from whom... Seven demons had come out. Maybe it's just me, but I think seven demons would classify someone as seriously messed up. From whom seven demons had come out. Now listen, I cannot, I, for the life of me, I cannot imagine the hellish nightmare that this woman, Mary Magdalene, awakened from when Jesus expelled those demons from her life and spoke her name, Mary, with strength and warmth. She got her life back or maybe had it for the first time. Her level of devotion to Jesus was like off the charts. She begins to organize her world around serving the person that had delivered her from the darkness. So these women, Mary Magdalene, uh, Salome, and another woman that, that, that are traveling with Jesus and his disciples, what are they doing? And the next verse in Luke tells us, it says, these women were helping support them out of their means, out of their money. Uh, the disciples, when they start following Jesus around, they left their day jobs. And when Jesus is traveling from town to town teaching, this was not an income-generating endeavor. And there were places where it starts to rain and you need to get an in for the night to get in out of the rain. And you do need to eat too. I know there's a story where Jesus feeds a group of people with five loaves and two fishes. My guess is that most of the time they just bought groceries. <laughs> and these women, they're traveling around and they're question, one question, what do they need now? What do they need now? What do they need now? Mary Magdalene is part of that group. What do you need now? She had orchestrated her world around serving the person that had delivered her for the darkness. I think there's something powerful there for us. Ready? Look at me. Look at me. Ready? We're healed to serve. Whatever kind of healing God brings to your life, you're healed to serve. It is a spiritual healing, emotional healing, physical healing, relational healing. When our gracious God brings any level of healing into your life, we just have to remember it's not just about us. 
were healed to serve. And so here's Mary Magdalene. She's followed him all the way from up north in Galilee down to Jerusalem. She's still trying to serve him even though he's gone. Someone took him. I can't find him. Someone took him. We can't find him. She's still trying to serve the body of the one who delivered her from the darkness. She hears a voice behind her. She doesn't know. She thinks it's the gardener. And the voice asks the question, two questions. Why are you crying? And who, who are you looking for? He asked her, Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? And who is it you're looking for? And like a broken record, she responds the same way she's already responded twice that day. She says, thinking it was the gardener. She thinks of the gardener. She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. She's in like full-on fix-it mode. It's like, if you took him, let me know where he is. I'll get the body. We'll, we'll bury him, right? You know, if you know where he is, if you took him, tell me where it is. I'll, I want to fix this problem. Someone took him. I can't find him. Someone took him. I can't find him. And then Jesus says one word. One word. He speaks a name. And it's her name. Jesus knows her by name. Jesus calls her by name. In the beautiful simplicity and economy of language, Jesus said to her, Mary, and I think he said it with that tone that she had heard him say a hundred times. Maybe it was the same way he said it when those demons were expelled. Mary, he said it with strength. He said it with warmth. He says her name, and she melts, and I think she grabs him. <laughs> I think she just grabs him and clings to him, like hangs on to him, like, okay, I've lost you once. I am never going to leave you again. And he says, okay, you need to let go of me. <laughs> I have not yet ascended to my father. In fact, I've got a job for you to do. Mary, I've got a job for you. I need you to let go of me, and I need you to go back in town. I need you to find the guys. I need you to tell the guys that you've seen me. I need you to tell the guys that I am ascending to my father and their father, and I'm ascending to my God and to their God. I need you to go, and she lets go of him. Once again that day, she goes back into town and finds the guys, and what she says is just this, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And they do not go from a faith quake to fall out belief. It's like what she said, it seemed like nonsense to them. But before we move on with that, I, I just want to circle back just, just for a minute to try to experience something together. There's, there's that moment where Jesus says to her, Mary, and says her name, and she recognizes his voice, where he knows her name and he calls her by name. Unless we're like numb, I think there's something in that that's supposed to touch us at a pretty deep spot, that he knows her by name and he calls her by name. And what I would like to suggest, what I would like to suggest is this. What if he knows you by name? 
And what if he's calling you by name? Jeff, that's a stretch because they hung out and he knew her. I mean, that he would know me. It just feels like a stretch. Okay. This uh, resurrection story that we're looking at is in John chapter 20. If, if you go back like 10 chapters in John, you encounter Jesus in the middle of an argument. He's having an argument with some religious leaders, and there's this back and forth with them. But it's the chapter, John chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking of himself being a good shepherd. And so just in your mind, get this image here of a, uh, a flock of sheep out on a ridge. And this is the, John, John 10 is where Jesus is, talks about being the good shepherd. In fact, it's John chapter 10 where Jesus would say, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives up his life for the sheep. And that's what he would do. It's in John chapter 10 that Jesus would say, look, there are people that just come in just to steal the sheep. He says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you might have life. I mean real life and full life. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's in that good shepherd section in the argument in John chapter 10. And it is in that good shepherd passage as well that Jesus, in describing the good shepherd, says this. He says he calls his own sheep. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. It's like Jesus is saying, I, I know my kids. I know my sheep by name, and I just... I just wonder if there are times when I feel like I'm in crisis and I'm in confusion and I should just hear his voice go, Jeff, <laughs> what if he knows me by name and what if he's calling me by name? Stephen, Emily, David, Jess, What if in our moments of most extreme confusion and chaos, just asking, what if he knows your name? What if he's calling your name? Back in Jerusalem, uh, <laughs> Mary shows up. I've seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. He's ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And all guys go, what? Every indication is. It just sounded like nonsense. I mean, remember a little bit about Mary's background. We're not exactly talking about a history here of emotional stability. <laughs> We're not exactly talking about a history of emotional health. Mary says she's seen the Lord. Mary's seen a lot of things. It's like, uh, it's not. Mary's seen the Lord. He's back. Hallelujah. He is risen. It, it just seemed like nonsense to them. So Easter Sunday morning appears to Mary. That night, that night, it says um, that the doors were locked. The disciples went in an upstairs room out of fear that the Jewish leaders are going to come after them and get them now. They're scared. And that Jesus appeared among them through the locked door. Jesus materialized. Now, I know this is immature, and I know this is something a senior pastor should not be thinking of, but for the life of me, I cannot get the transporter room from the Starship Enterprise out of my mind. 
I told you it was immature, and you call yourself a pastor. I know, it's embarrassing. Uh, Jesus materializes. He materializes among them. And he says, peace be with you. And then Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm now going to send you. And then he shows them where the nails went in, and he shows them you know, like from the crucifixion where a Roman soldier stuck a, took a spear up under his rib cage into his heart to make sure that he was dead. He shows them his wounds. And what's, what's powerful about this is that it's not kind of like, yeah, and we saw Jesus, and he was a couple hundred yards away, and it was kind of like in a mist, and it was by a lake. I think it's him. Do you think it's him? It's like in a room. It's up close and personal. He eats something when he's with them. And then they told their friends, and all their friends believed. No, this is not just a story of recovering faith. This is a story of doubt. Because not all of the disciples were there. Twelve disciples. Judas, <clears throat> no longer on the team. Eight, nine, ten. Someone's missing. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Someone's missing. Who's missing? Was one of the like the three-year disciples by the name of Thomas. And we have given Thomas an adjective. We call him Doubting Thomas. This is encounter number two. Encounter number two is a Thomas. Thomas wasn't in the room. They come to Thomas. Thomas, we saw him. He's alive. And Thomas goes, not buying it. Not buying it. No, no, no. We saw the nail things in his hands and that place. And he says, well, when I see what you saw, then I'll believe. This is what Thomas is. When I see what you saw, that's Thomas. And so this is what he says. Thomas's statement right here. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. I'm not buying it. Now, to give Thomas a little bit of a break, all he's asking for here is to experience what they had experienced. But a whole week goes by. I mean, imagine what that's like, Thomas hanging out with them. You got 10 disciples like high-fiving each other, and you got one outlier going, no, not buying it, not buying it. Not until I see what you saw. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Thomas, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he was here in the room with us. We looked at his hands. We saw the nail marks. We looked at his side. I'm telling you, he's alive. And Thomas is like, and I'm telling you, I'm not buying it until I see what you saw. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's one holdout. There's one outlier. It's Thomas who just, I, 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 I no, no, I'm not buying it. One week after Easter Sunday, one week after the resurrection, they're again in the room, again the door is locked, this time all 11 of them are together, and once again Jesus materializes in the room, and he says again, peace be with you, and then he doesn't talk to the group, it was you. We need to have a conversation. <laughs> Just Thomas. He singles Thomas out. Encounter number two. One-on-one -on -one encounter number two. Thomas. This is what Jesus says. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And then he throws down this. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas, he invites Thomas in, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas, he just like, just gives this like one sentence out of him. And he's like, uh, my Lord and my God, I believe. I'm, I'm in here. 
I believe. Uh, it's about Thomas's recovering faith as well. My Lord and my God, I believe that you're the one. I believe that you're the chosen one. I believe that you are not a convicted, executed criminal, but the resurrected Savior. I believe, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says this thing that's just really precious. Jesus says, Thomas, uh, you believe because you got to see this. And Jesus, I think, looking down through time to people like us, said, blessed are those who will believe without getting to see the evidence that you saw. Blessed are those who will believe without seeing. Now, in this encounter with Thomas, I believe that there are two very critical things kind of to hang on to and absorb. I believe there is both a challenge, and then I believe there's an invitation. So challenge and invitation. Uh, challenge first. The challenge, he just tells Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. And somehow, I don't think that's just for Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. Because... The resurrection story of John chapter 20 isn't just about Mary recovering her faith. The resurrection story of John chapter 20 isn't just about Thomas recovering his faith. The resurrection Easter story of John chapter 20 is about you recovering yours. And I know that because just two verses later, the way the chapter ends, what the author John does, he's been describing what happened, describing what happened, describing what happened, and then all of a sudden he goes, note to the reader. It's like he's addressing the people who will pick up his scroll and read it. And this is what John writes in verse 31 of chapter 20. He says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life. Real life, not fake life, not phony life. You might have life in his name. John is now addressing the reader and says, but this is here not simply to show you how Mary renewed her faith or how Thomas renewed his faith, but how you can restore faith. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you might taste of life. Remember back in John chapter 10, that good shepherd thing, thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I don't know what is in your life that is stealing, killing, and destroying. But hear the words of the life giver. So it, 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 to come to God through Jesus, I think is in, to say in one way or another, Look, I believe that you came for me. I have come to believe that you came for me. I have come to believe that you died for me, paying off debts that were mine and not yours. I have come to believe that you rose back to life for me as the resurrection life giver to give me life now. But that life that you give me now continues into the next life, the life after death life. I have come to believe, John, these things are written that you may believe. Man, I just am looking forward to years from now hearing some of your voices go, Jeff, I'm telling you, Easter 2023 was when my journey of faith got reignited and I started believing or came to belief. And there's a bunch of you, I'm just going like, yeah, I'm not buying it, dude. I, I, I've got questions. i got doubts. I've been hurt. I just don't know anymore. I just don't know what I believe anymore. 
okay, not only is there a challenge, stop doubting and believe, there's also an invitation, and the invitation was this, touch me and see. I just want you to see something here. Jesus doesn't push Thomas out. He pulls Thomas in with all his questions and all his doubts. He said, Thomas, we need to talk. Come here, okay. Look at the side, look at the hands. He pulls Thomas in. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. And the thing I love about the touch me and see thing is that it is, it is so close to the very first words Jesus spoke to his very first disciples in John's gospel. Before he's got any followers, before any people had attached themselves to him, Jesus is walking, John chapter 1, Jesus is walking, and he turns around, and there are a couple guys who are interested, a couple guys following him. And he turns around, first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's gospel, he says, what do you want? <laughs> Jesus' first expression in John's gospel, what do you want? And these two guys go, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> and Jesus invites them. He says, come and you will see. And it's just this statement right here, come and see. And I love that. It's like soon after that, one of the guys that's attached himself to Jesus, he's the disciple Philip. He runs and gets his buddy Nathaniel and says, we found him, we found him. We found the one we think is like our promised king and Messiah. His name is Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, what? Nazareth, that place is the sticks. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. <laughs> he just says, come on, let's come and see. See, this is an invitation to explore. This is an invitation to examine. This is an invitation to hear the voice of the one who knows your name and the one who's calling your name. Come and see, come and see, come and see. Jesus doesn't push Thomas out. He invites Thomas in with all his questions and all his doubts. Come and see, come and see. It's an invitation. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you for something dramatic pause. I'm going to ask you for three weekends. I'm going to ask you for the next three weekends. I won't be speaking the next three weekends. The next three weekends we'll be hearing from uh, this guy here, a um, guy by the name of John Dixon, a friend of Ada Bible Church. John is uh, brilliant. His home was in Sydney, Australia. Recently, he's now a uh, uh, doctor uh, instructor, teacher at Wheaton University in, in suburban Chicago. And so now John is right across the lake. And so John has agreed to be with us for three consecutive Sundays. Now, if you've never heard John, what I love about John is his passion, not simply for the all-in believer, but for the doubter, for the person with questions. Many of his books, it's like Doubter's Guide to Jesus, Doubter's Guide to the Bible, Doubter's Guide to the Ten Commandments. John just loves interacting and guiding people, not all in in their faith, but people go, man, I don't know, I don't know, I just don't know. John will be with us for the next three weekends for a series called Good News. Rather than me inviting you to the series, John just took his phone and made a quick one-minute video, and so let's watch him invite you <laughs> to his upcoming series. Hi, Ada, John Dixon here. We live in pretty skeptical times. There are those who don't think there's anything worth looking into in Christianity. And there are those who used to believe, but now they're not sure what to make of it. But it's not like this is a new thing. Um, it's really not like ancient people believed any old nonsense, but we educated people, we question. No, 
Just read some ancient literature. Um, Aristotle, Cicero, Augustine, they were questioners. Or think of doubting Thomas in the gospel. I will not believe in the risen Jesus unless I see and touch for myself. It's in this context that I want to bring a series to you in a couple of weeks uh, called Good News. It's about good news for our minds, for our hearts and for our lives. I hope to see you there and I hope you'll invite your friends and family along too. God bless. Coming to a church near you. I just want to invite you. Now, listen, I love listening to John speak. Few people in the world I'd rather listen to than John Dixon. I think it will be insightful and interesting for anybody. But I'm telling you, if you're in the process of moving toward faith or if you feel faith slipping away and you're at one of those spots where you go, man, I don't know anymore, uh, I think this could be super helpful in your journey. But, but here's the invitation. It's just the invitation to come and see. Come and see. It was Jesus' invitation. Come and see. It's an invitation to explore. It's an invitation to experience. It's an invitation to examine. It's the invitation to hear the voice of the one who knows your name. You might hear calling your name. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to come and see. So I'm going to ask you to stand here at Cascade and at our other campuses as well. Our musicians are going to come out, and we're going to sing one final song as we wrap up the service today. As they're coming out, let me offer a prayer. Gracious God, once again, we say thank you. Thank you that we've been willing and able to gather together and to open your word to see it and to see you, the life-giving Christ. I ask that in the upcoming weeks, you would draw us near and meet us. That we would find that we were not simply searching for you, but that you were reaching for us all along. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our resurrected Lord. Amen.